Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go? Hey, hey, Sherry, who who sings that song? I mean, who sings that song besides me? I don't know. I think you ruined it so badly. I can't even place the real song. You seriously don't know who sings that song? You know should all I stay music or trivia. Should I go? Want me to sing it again? No, please, no. Um, not that you're a terrible singer. I just don't think that was the right. Was I in the wrong key? The wrong tone? You really don't know. I it's oh. like one of those British like bands. When, when we I'm play music aware. trivia, Sherry beats me like a million to like, zero every time we do music trivia. It's like like on a road trip or something. I think it's like the same Rock the Casbah band. I was at the Rock the Casbah band. I can't remember. Well, I'm I can't surprised. Remember. I'm getting old too. I okay. Well, maybe I'll look that up and it'll be in the show notes. This is the Untoxicated Podcast. Welcome, listeners. That is the full extent of the singing. There will be no more. <laughs> I'm Matt Salis here, as always, with my wife, Sherry Salis. But that's what we're going to talk about today. Should I stay or should I go? This is one of the most common questions that we get. People describe their the situation in their alcoholic relationship <coughs> to us, and then you know they, they ask questions like, why did Sherry stay? Why did you guys make it through the active alcoholism period and then they present their situation and they they ask us just point blank should should I put up with this should I stay and the answer is it's it's a quick and short answer but it's you know it's not it's not helpful necessarily the answer is that that's situational it depends on each person's tolerance for the pain involved in active alcoholism it it depends on the amount of chaos involved. Certainly there are some cut and dry situations, consistent physical abuse or, or abuse of the children. I mean, that's that's just a done deal. That needs to end immediately. But most of this is gray area stuff. And so we can't ever answer for people, should you stay or should you go? All we can do is present our situation and what happened in our lives and the decisions we made. And hopefully that maybe gives a nudge or, or a roadmap or some other cliche kind of word for people to use to, to make decisions in their lives. And we also, I'll put the plug in right up the top here, we also are super proud and excited about our Echoes of Recovery program for the loved ones of alcoholics because it is all about connection. So rather than just having Sherry and I and our stories, the people that are in Echoes of Recovery have dozens of other people's stories to relate to and resonate with and to help them make decisions about whether they should stay or whether they should go. In the end, it all comes down to this one thing. It all comes down to the battle between insecurities and our instincts. Insecurities are the doubts that creep in. They are formed by gaslighting of the alcoholic in our life, the lies, the denials. Did we see that or didn't we see that? Is that really what's happening or am I just making that up? Do all people drink every day to this amount? Or is the person that I'm in relationship with just lying to me and pulling the wool over my eyes? That's where the insecurities come in. And getting rid of the insecurities and getting on to the instincts, listening to ourselves, believing the truth, knowing what we're seeing is actually happening. It sounds simple, but it's it's really, it's diabolically hard because this is a diabolical disease. And getting there is, that's the difference between making the right decision and making no decision, being paralyzed by indecision. We've got to find those instincts. And that's what we're all about in Echoes of Recovery. So check us out if you are the loved one of an alcoholic, echoesofrecovery.com. E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com and let us know if you think maybe you'd like to join us. So let's talk about the influences in the decision-making process of whether someone should stay or should go in a relationship. And Sherry, I've got a list, I think there's 10, something like that, of things that are involved Right at the top of the list is one that is brought up most, I think, most frequently 
from from listeners and, and readers and people that we talk to, and it's finances. And what happens in a marriage, we interweave our finances to the point where the idea of leaving an alcoholic marriage right at the top of the mind for people when when they when they feel like that might be the right thing to do is they say, well, I can't afford it. I can't afford to leave. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about specifics in our relationship. And I want to, you know, I'm going to ask you some questions about what was going through your mind during the worst of my act of alcoholism when you were being encouraged by some family members to leave me and divorce me. And so let's start with that finances issue for us. You know, we we both worked until we had kids, and then you at the at the beginning when the kids were babies, you stopped working and stayed home. And then we took the advanced step of, you know, weaving together our lives even more than a, than a normal couple does by uh, owning a business together. And so both of our names were on the deed of the business. Uh, in fact, you were a 51% owner because someone along the lines told us there were advantages for women-owned businesses. That never transpired for us. We never found any <laughs> advantages to the women-owned business. But we owned a business together. You were 51% ownership of the business. So the idea that you could just... And, and it was a business. I mean, it was a bakery. We were actively involved like in there baking the bread. We weren't sitting in an ivory tower counting our money. So... If you were to decide to leave and divorce me, um, unwrapping you from that business would have been very, very difficult. You, you had no interest in taking, you know, fast 51% owner. You could have said, Matt, get out. I'm going to run this business. But you had no interest in being 100% of the daily operations by yourself. In fact, this was, as, as is often the case, this was something that I kind of talked you into doing. Um, we had a 15-year bakery career. I don't think it was all miserable, and I don't think you hated every moment of it. I think you enjoyed quite a bit of it. But the reality at the onset was that I talked you into doing this, and you wouldn't have wanted to run it on your own. So it wasn't even just like you didn't have enough money to separate from me because I had the job and you were staying home with the kids. It was even more complex than that because we were on the deed to this business together. So what did that feel like? And, and and I want to say one more thing about that. I don't think, I know that I didn't consciously push us down that road where we owned this business together so that I could lock you to me even more closely, even more inextricably. I didn't do that in a conscious way. But I think back now and I wonder if there wasn't some subconscious thing going on where I was saying, you know, this drinking's getting bad. It's getting worse. She's clearly not happy with me. Maybe she's going to leave me someday. And just in case she decides to do that, I should lock her in even tighter. You know, we've already got the mortgage together, but I should put her name on this business with me so that it makes it even harder for her to leave. Like I said, no, never had that conscious thought, but I wonder if in the back of my mind that wasn't part of the decision to go down the small business road. So what did it feel like from your side of things to know that, you know, you hadn't worked in a while. There wasn't enough money in the bank for you just to run away. And you were locked in with me in, in this business. Um, well, uh, I guess, I don't know. Did my Seems rambling like, yeah, question I not give of, you enough time I, to think? <laughs> your five minutes of rambling. Um, I love no, it when like, you, for, I guess for our listeners... Sometimes Sherry looks down at the clock because our, our recording device has a clock. And, and I, whenever she looks down at the clock, that's her indicator that I've talked too much. But she did it like six times during that preamble. Anyway, okay, go. You're ready. You're on. So so I will just want to back up and say I don't think that the bakery was... So, so we had one child when we decided to start the bakery. We were pregnant with number two. I don't think it took a whole lot of convincing... Other than me just being nervous and scared about not having a steady income. Right. You wanting to own your own business had been something or worked with a friend to do something on your own had been something you had talked about for 
the years that we had been together, the seven years we had been together previously. It's like almost immediately when you got out working for someone else, you started having these visions of, oh, I want to do something on my own. Right. That's true. So, um, so it didn't come to a surprise and I don't feel, I feel like you're making yourself seem too, you know, thoughtful or like saying like in the back of your head, because I don't think it was that. Also, we had our daughter and you wanted children and I, at some point, had said I was hesitant about whether or not we were going to have kids. So well, I don't even remember that. I know. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Really? Yes. You're such a good mother. I don't even, like, picture you without having children. So it's hard for me to so, grasp. So, yeah. So we were, like, five years married before we had our first child and been together for... Lived together for two. Okay. So we had been together a while. So, um... So I remember because you traveled with your jobs. You always had to do business travel. And so you wanted to be with her. Like you, when you were in town and you you would come home and you would feed her. And, you know, when she was like six months old and started food or, you know, we started that goopy rice cereal. You always wanted to be a part of her life. So you said that you wanted to... Do something that you wouldn't have to travel right. like that much because you wanted to be a part of your kid's life. And you're not, I'm not disparaging your dad, but he had to travel for business, so he missed a lot. Right. And you didn't want to be like that. You wanted to be a hands-on dad. You wanted to be a soccer dad. You wanted to be the coach. You wanted to be the support. So I don't think it had anything to do with trying to lock us in together. <coughs> um. I think when it came about, like, how we were choosing the business, we looked into several different um, franchises, and we just happened to choose the one we had because it, I had experience in working there and with so my culinary we, bakery. That's why we chose it. But when you realized you were locked into it, how did that, like, like when you were getting advice, you need to leave him, and you were considering I guess I feel it. like I wouldn't have probably looked at it from that financial and obligatory Locked into this business on this contract. I probably wouldn't have looked at it like any of that. I would have let the lawyers sort that out. I would have let the mediators, whatever. That would have came later. Um, the only thing that I felt locked in was because I didn't have control of the finances. Right. I mean, you had the business accounts. We had satellites for a while. You would often move money back and forth together. I really didn't have access to our accounts. All fully legal. All fully legal. I know, but it was no just money to keep laundering. No, but to like <laughs> keep something afloat or if we needed to pull from yeah, our personal reserves. Yeah, from one account to yeah, another for sure. If we had to pull to something bills. from our personal reserves to help out and you know, and our pay fluctuated. So, I had my budget and that's pretty much all I knew. Yeah. So, I didn't have access to any of that. I didn't even know how to access any of that. I didn't know what we were worth. I didn't know what the business was worth. Nothing. So now, in fairness, I, I would have answered any it of would those have. questions. I you. just, you know, finances were very hard and and challenging and a tough, touchy subject because it wasn't always like the most financially stable of no question businesses. But you would have given me all that. But how could I have asked for all that information then to say because I'm planning on leaving? Yeah. You. So I probably would have just stuck my head in the sand and left, but I knew that I didn't have that. We, we did have all of our accounts were shared because I know that when we get these questions, some people do it differently in marriages. Some people have separate accounts. All of our checking account, our credit cards, everything were shared accounts. Both of our names were on on everything. So it wasn't, I mean, you could have asked me, you could have gone to the bank and said, here's my driver's license, I'm on this account, tell me everything about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Technically, you could have. It's more a question, I mean, you did know because of the, I said, here's your spending budget for groceries and gas <laughs> and, and entertainment, and it wasn't much money. So you did have a sense that um, owning our own business was stressful and financially uncertain, mm -hmm. and that there wasn't, you know... Like, there wasn't a pile of cash just right. sitting there ready for you to grab it and head out the door. Right, right. So how did that... I mean, did did you ever go through the process of thinking, okay, here's what I'd have to do if I left. I'd have to look at what I've done for a living in the past, and I'd have to get a job in one of those career fields because I need you know to do something that I've got experience with. Mm -hmm. Did you get that far along in the thought process? Uh, not, not 
terribly far along because I definitely felt like the my, you know, culinary. Like, that's great if you're single, not when you have four kids yeah. or three kids. So you knew culinary So I knew that it. that would be really hard because yeah. it'd be long hours. It'd probably be nights. The pay isn't, isn't great. Um... And then, you know, like, work at a department store or something, and customer service like I did in college, that's crappy. Um, you know, and the, the, so I guess, like, I was thinking, okay, well, I could look back into banking and personal banking, and, but, I mean, then I would, like, go to our bank and everything, like, the rotation of the staff was in there and, you know, just all the advances and everything being online. I'm like, you know, the, the in-person banking is almost dying, so sure. I don't know... You know, but that would have been the most stable when I was looking into it. I mean, I did look into it at one point, not because I'm thinking of the divorce, just like what can I do supplementally to earn more money that wouldn't affect my needing to be in the bakery a few times or once or twice a week like I did, mm-hmm. you know. So I kind of like looked around and there's really not a whole lot out there. On the rare occasions that our arguments rose to the level of you actually talking about divorce, which happened a few times, mm-hmm. you know, the and, and part of it would be me insulting you. I would say, what are you going to do? Run back home to Spencer, Spencer, Indiana, where you're from? Mm-hmm. Small, little, tiny, you know, dying town in Indiana. And so that, I said that as a form of an insult, but I think we both knew that if you had left, that's where you were going because yeah. that's where your mom and your sister were. Yeah, and I also know that when you say that, I always kind of like had sort of a grinchy grin like in the back of my head, smiling up going, yeah, and your parents will freaking help me, you know, even though you're their son. Which is which is 100% you true. You know, I, I would like. have the support of them as well. But so so when we... Staying on this finances topic, if it had come to that and you had left, you would have gone home not only for emotional support, but for a place to live for a while mm-hmm. while the finances got sorted out and while you figured out whether you were going to be able to make a living and, and support the kids. And, and as the divorce proceedings went through and figured out how much money you were going to get from me um, in the form of alimony and child support. So... I guess the point I'm trying to make is the, the the finances, our finances were not in a way that you could have just up and gone, bought a new house across town and kept on motoring without much disruption. Our finances were such that it would have been a major disruption, a move across country, a, a change of lifestyle, 100%. For both of us. For both of us. And so... When I, I I just think it's interesting in this conversation. I don't think finances weighed on you as much as they do some of the people who contact us. I think if it had gotten to the point where it was time to go, you would have gone. You would yeah. have relied on your your mother. You would have relied on your sister. You would have relied on support some support from my parents, mm-hmm. and you would have gone. Yeah, I mean, there was a while that I had um, a little bit of money, not much, three hundred bucks. But that would have gotten me out the door with the kids and take full of gas or two at a hotel. You had that, like, stashed aside? Yeah. Okay. And then I gave it back when things were getting better. Yeah. To the family member that lent it to me. Um, just because I knew that I had nothing and I was like, you know, one of the conversations... Um, were you afraid, can I ask? Because I was afraid you would turn off the credit card. Okay, because I was going to say, we had police. access to the same accounts. Yeah, I mean, turn off the credit card and... Okay, I Yeah, see. like anything like that. So that's why there was the cash. I know one of the things that... that did it scare you? I want to hear you. I want to hear this in your words. But when we bought our vehicles, the, the one that you drove... We we were at the dealership together. We picked it out together. We test drove it together. And then we had some number of kids at the time. I don't remember. And we said, okay, Sherry, you go home. I'll take care of the paperwork. Because you know that? The, the negotiation and the paperwork takes two or three hours. And for you to sit there with the kids in the dealership didn't make sense. So when it came time to sign the paperwork and the title and whatever you do when you buy a car, it was just my name on the car. Mm-hmm. That was not in any way done as a way of holding you into the relationship. It was done out of love for our kids and convenience for you so you could go home. But did that weigh on you that the 
the car title was in my name and you might be halfway across Kansas and I'd call oh, the police yeah. and call it a stolen vehicle or oh, something? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was actually my sister who said, you don't have anything in your own name. Nothing. Nothing is in your name. Really. Like, that is just him manipulating you. Huh. I mean, that's what they thought. Do you think that now about the car title? No, and I didn't think of it before because I knew it was a convenience thing. And, you know, it was just like, oh, yeah, here we are signing paperwork and we've got kids running around. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, when she said that, I was like kind of surprised because I hadn't thought of it. But I... You know, in the back of my head, I was like, no, that's not why we did that. And I don't think he's... Not that I'm saying you're not that smart. I don't think you're that evil. And I know why we did it. You know? Yeah. I don't think you were you were trying to play everything a certain way. You weren't yeah. thinking of, of it like that. So you had enough money to get home. And yeah. home was... Just for sanctuary for a little sanctuary, bit. Sanctuary. For just a exactly. little bit. Exactly. And people there that would take care of you and help you take care of the kids. So I, I think we should move on beyond finances, but I think that is, like, I, I love you for that mindset. You, you, didn't, you didn't sit there with a calculator and figure out the long-term strategy. You are close with your family. You love your family. They love you. You knew they wouldn't let you starve. They knew they wouldn't let the kids starve. And even if it was uncomfortable and not ideal, you, you know, um, the finances, I, they were the first topic we've talked about, but they weren't on the top of your list of concerns. No, mine would have just been more an emotional reaction. And I guess because I had seen my sister leave her husband and bring her two young boys to, our already our small house that I lived in with my mom and my stepdad and yeah it was uncomfortable and inconvenient but that's what we did while she got on her feet yeah and you know so that's what a healthy loving family does mm -hmm. so we've covered the first two things on my list finances and work the next thing on the list I think your reaction is going to be different it's kids so when you were in, when, when the relationship was in the worst throes of alcoholic chaos, and which was, by the way, we've said this before, it was not at the end of my drinking. It was maybe two years before the end of my drinking was when it was at its worst of its worst, right? Two or three years before the end of my drinking. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to go back to that and try to place okay. it. To... I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it wasn't at the end. Yeah. So when we were at the worst of my drinking, uh, I was the most out of control, the most hateful, the fights were the worst, the most vicious, and you were considering leaving and you were being advised by family to leave. What what were your thoughts about the kids and their, you know, mental health, their, 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 their growing up, the rest of their growing up? Did you weigh, okay, this is a terrible situation, but at least they'd have a father versus the alternative is we're divorced and they don't get to see their father all that much? Oh, yeah, I I definitely weighed that back and forth because I kept thinking, well, I mean, like living in an alcoholic home where it's like unstable and you don't know what's going to happen um, on the weekends with your parents. And is that worse than... Oh, the kids with their the parents. Kids, yeah. So you and I. So me and you. Yeah. Okay. Like, is that worse than taking them away? Because you're right. I couldn't have afforded to stay here in Colorado. I mean, if I had stayed in Colorado somewhere, it'd have been like, you know, really far away from where we are now, could to afford it. So uh, they would have had to have changed their friends and school and sports and activities. So I definitely weighed in there. I also know that. You know, I weighed in the fact that sometimes you weren't, you were a great father and it wasn't all the time that you acted like that. So, um, yeah, I just, I guess that was part of it was like as the older they got, the harder it was to think about leaving. 
Why why harder as they got older? Because they're just they were so much more attached to their lifestyle and their friends and their school and their living sure. here. Um, I think it would be more resentful had I not done it like earlier. One of the things we hear from people quite frequently is that they are afraid that if they leave their kids are going to resent them for it. So in other words, if you had left that the kids would say, "Oh, why did you leave dad, Sherry, mom? You you were the evil one in this situation." and not be able to see that the alcoholism is what caused the need to leave. Did that ever enter your mind? Not so much. Good. Um because I think most of the time they were pretty aware and there were times like I told them it was because you were acting like this because of the way you were the way the alcohol was making you and that you were drunk and I think they would have been the anger would have come from the fact that we would have had to have moved because I don't because I just don't didn't see it financially how you and I could have stayed here in Denver in Denver not in this palace that yeah. we live in I mean we live in a one story it's officially a two bedroom <coughs> yeah. house we've got people living in the basement too but yeah but I mean so like not Denver the size yeah. of the house just Denver is an expensive it's place it's expensive place to live so right. I just couldn't you know and all the surrounding areas I just couldn't see how we could afford to kind of stay in the area of Denver or surrounding area without it just being a financial hardship on both of us because we wouldn't have been able to come up with that kind of money like that just shows that's that's an a tribute to your love for your kids you were you know one of your biggest concerns was that they would be pulled away from their school their friends the things that they had grown accustomed to am I saying that right yeah yeah but you weren't worried about them hating on you for pulling them away from their father and I think this is a really important point kids are intuitive kids are smart you know there might be periods in an adolescent's maturity or immaturity where they point the finger the wrong direction but at the end of the day I 100% agree with you if you had decided to go and you had had to go maybe in the short term there would have been some frustration with you but eventually the kids would have realized no living in an alcoholic marriage like that that was actively alcoholic and had it gotten worse than it was was unsustainable and it was for the kids best interest for you to leave. So I'm not I'm not encouraging people just automatically to pick up and leave. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if you've made the decision that you have to leave, if one of your concerns is that the kids are going to turn on you, I hope you're able to brace yourself for some short-term impact there. But that but know that in the long term they'll love you for it and recognize that you did what was best for yourself and the kids as long as you're following your instincts and um I, th- I think they, they'll forgive you and see where the blame lies. The blame lies with the alcohol. So, okay, thank you for sharing thoughts about the kids. I mean, and I, and I was just going to add, they definitely would have missed you. You know, because you were a good dad, and you are a good dad. Yeah, it wasn't terrible all the time. Right, and, you know, I... I appreciate the how involved you are with them and always have been. So you were, you weren't just the dad, you were like a co-parent. You know, one thing, this is kind of a little off topic, but while we're talking about kids and parenting, one thing that's way different now than even than it was a couple of years ago when I was a couple of years sober is the patience. I can just feel it. Like when they come to me and they want to do something that is kind of crossing the line of what I want them to do or if they've gotten in trouble I didn't used to be patient at all sober or or if I had alcohol in my system I would yell and rant and scream and get all upset but I just don't even feel that emotion anymore and so you say I was a good father I was a decent father I'm a much better father now I think yeah I, th- I think so. I think that you were a good father then. You were hands-on. You, you know, with coaching soccer as much as you could for them. Um, trying to, you know, be involved as much as you could. I mean, there were a day or two of the week where you were the primary caregiver because I would be at the bakery or 
something. After they got a little older? After they got a little older and they weren't babies, so. Okay. Yeah. Well, is it is it safe to leave this discussion about kids yeah. by saying that they were at the top of your mind when it came to decision-making about whether you should stay or you should go? Yeah. Were they your number one priority? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah not even close. Okay. Way more so than finances. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about family influences and opinions. Let's actually lump these next two together, family and friends. Now, in the case of friends, that's a kind of easy one because because of my denials and my high-functioning status and the fact that people didn't know about my alcoholism, I didn't really allow you to get the opinions of friends very much. That would have... I would have been irate if you had let friends in on the inside scoop of what was going on. So primarily for us, the topic is is family. The few family members, my parents, my sister, your mom and your sister, who, who knew what was going on. How much influence did they have on your decision making about whether to stay or to go? Um, let's see. <coughs> I... I know that, like, they, there was a lot more from my side of, you know, they would, they would say things like, well, why don't you just leave him? Because, um, my mom had been divorced, um, from my dad, who was an alcoholic. My sister left her first husband, who I wouldn't necessarily consider an alcoholic, but, um, abusive and, and drank um and then got herself involved with her second husband who had some mental health issues so alcohol was medicating self-medicating and she, i knew that she felt stuck in a way in her marriage right and they both like suggested that i leave but i didn't really let it influence me too much, obviously, because I'm I stuck it out. Right. Um, I think that they saw how hard it would be. Um, and then when we had our fourth one, I remember my mom saying, you know, something to the tune of like, "How are you ever gonna leave now? You have four kids. How can you support that? Like, four kids on a single woman's salary. You know, that's not that's not much money." And I think just the um, support of having that co-parent, too. Because I think they both realized that you weren't, like, a down-and-out, you know, living on the street or disappearing for, you know, times on end and getting fired from your jobs. No infidelity, never crushed the finances, although I think we'd both like to have the money back that I spent on booze. (laughs) That would be nice. Yeah. Um, so I think that they saw that there was a lot of good, so it was almost like a half-hearted, you know, well, you can leave him. Like, remember, that's a choice. That's an option. But I don't think I ever had a resounding, yes, you need to leave them now. What about the, how do I put this? So your mom and your sister had both experienced divorces, which is sad, on my side of the family, my parents were still together. So did, was there any, like, I'll show you, I'll I'll make this work, any kind of determination to make the marriage work because you had seen the, not, not I'll show you, that was the wrong way to say that. Yeah, but you see, had seen I know the I... damage divorce had done, you had felt, I mean, you, yeah. you had been through divorces as a child. Was there any, like, I'm going to stick this out and make it work and did that kind of determination? Well, I would say it wasn't, you know, I just didn't want to get married and then get divorced. I wanted to make sure that I was marrying somebody who fit a lot of criteria that I was looking for. Um, so it wasn't like I was trying to prove anything by sticking in. I was just trying to understand that marriage is hard and you have to work through things and, and stay together and... I know that everybody who gets married has the intention of staying together forever and working through. I just didn't feel like it had gotten to the point that it was so bad that I needed to leave. 
I mean, because I knew my part in it. And the baggage I carried in. So, I knew that there were things that I do and, you know, and did that were annoying and disruptive to the relationship. And I hadn't gotten yet to where I was, like, blaming alcohol. I mean, I was blaming for you for, for my behavior, but also for your behavior. Like, because I was, like, blaming you. Like, you're choosing to drink. You're choosing to react. But I, I just felt like I wanted to stick it out longer because it hadn't gotten that bad. I mean, some nights were really bad. Yeah. But not overall. Some of the people that we've gotten to know through this work, through Echoes of Recovery, through the podcast, that have ultimately made the decision to get divorced, they, you know, they talk to us about how there's a, a feeling, oh, I don't want to put, I don't want to use the wrong words, almost a feeling of, of some level of failure when you get divorced. And I'm here to say that if it gets to the point where your instincts are telling you that divorce is the right option for you and your situation, that takes an unbelievable amount of strength, strength to move forward with that considering the financial things that we've talked about, the work-related issues, the kids, the impact on the kids, if you actually move forward and get divorced from an alcoholic marriage, I, 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 you know, I'm not happy for your situation. I'm not jealous of your situation. But I admire the strength that that takes so much more than I ever realized. I, I thought divorce was the easy way out for a long time. Yeah. There's nothing easy about divorce. And and I'll add, there's nothing easy about divorce, especially in an alcoholic marriage. So, did when you would consider divorce, did, it, did that feeling of, oh, that'll make me a failure, did that ever... No, I never had that feeling of, okay. it'll make me a failure. I know that you and I have had talked about this, and I know that your opinion has changed greatly. Um, we had some friends... That were married around the same times we had gotten married, and and you know a few of them have have been divorced, which is no surprise, right? When you look at the statistics, so um, the only surprise for our friends was that it wasn't you and I that got divorced. I think yeah, because we were kind of voted most likely to not make it the way we used to argue even back in college. Yeah, so, um, but you used to think that it you had admitted to me that you thought divorce was a failure. It was like not winning in your like you had this real you're not a competitive person but you definitely had this opinion of of yourself and what others thought of you you had a really high you really valued what other people thought of you and you thought that a divorce would look like failure and no one in your family had you know an immediate family or even just your next ring out of aunts and uncles nobody had gotten divorced right so i think that it was just you know, since it wasn't something that was uncommon, I mean, in my family, I mean, my mom and my sister were the only ones that had gotten divorced, like, between my dad's side of the family and the rest of the siblings. So, at that point. So, I think you definitely I, made me feel like it would be a failure. I'm glad you kind of turned that back on me because you're right. I, I mean, I want to, in this podcast episode, I want to get your opinion on all these things. <laughs> But you're right. I would have considered that a failure in light of the fact that on my side of the family there weren't divorces. And I also would have considered a failure for not breaking the cycle on your side of the family. So, you know, I'm, I was the alcoholic. So really, who cares what my opinion was? But my opinion was I would have felt like that was a failure. You're right. But I'm, I'm glad that that's another area where you were more mature. And while you didn't want to get divorced... And, you know, your family and my family influenced your decision-making to a to some degree. It wasn't the end-all, be-all, oh, my God, I'll, I'll be so embarrassed if I get a divorce. It was yeah. you still kept what was right for the kids and what was right for you way, way, way above the, uh, the embarrassment factor. Right? Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about 
kind of some some broader topics. Um, let's go ahead and stay with friends and then lump in, you know, we were very active in our church. We were very active in our community. You mentioned, you know, that I coached soccer on the side. We did a lot with our church. What was that? Was there an influence there for you either? Was there a positive influence toward the sanctity of marriage or was there a, you know, a, a more negative influence in that you would have been embarrassed in front of our community and our church community and our friends had you taken the kids and gone home to Southern Indiana? Or did that not even factor in for you? I don't think it factored in. I would have, I would have, you know, the, the things that were the most important to me were the things I took with me. The kids. Yep. Yeah. And you, I could always kids take you would God have taken with, with me. You. Right. Yeah. So, um, no, I think that it probably would have been a real, like, shocker. I don't think that I would have been embarrassed. And I wouldn't have been embarrassed to say, um, yeah, he's a high-functioning alcoholic. And that's why we broke up. That's why we split. That's why we divorced. Whatever. So, I wouldn't have been embarrassed about that because I knew that that wasn't my fault. Um. So I don't, I don't think like embarrassment would have been a factor in it at all. We talk about the shame and stigma associated with alcoholism a lot and how important it is to crush the stigma so that people can have open conversations like this one. People can seek help openly. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot of feedback. I'm asked a lot, how, how can you talk like this? How can you just lay it all out there? And it's a huge change from the person that I used to be back when I was drinking. I would have been devastatedly embarrassed. I don't think that's really a word. But it conveys the emotion. I would have been crushed if in front of our community, our church community, our friend set, people I worked with, all of that, had our marriage failed and had it further been become public knowledge that the reason the marriage failed was right. because of my alcoholism. That would have crushed me. Right. I mean, that that definitely would have, like, crushed you. And I guess, like, at the um, the height of the worst of your drinking, one of our um, pastors at our church, she had been divorced. And I'm not for sure if it was because her ex-husband was an alcoholic. But So I didn't feel like... Um, I think it it would have shocked everybody. Like if I were to have said, yeah, Matt's an alcoholic. You know, you know, it would have shocked the people that we hung out with. It would have shocked, like, the people that we employed that were our friends, too, that had become our friends. Like, they've, they've a lot of them, like, in our friends for our church community, through our dinner groups and stuff, saw you drink and knew you drank. But I think you've mentioned in some of your writing in our podcast, like, but you were like always made sure after a Saturday night when we had our dinner groups that you were at church and even even early at church making sure that you were some of the first people yeah, there. Giving the impression giving that everything's the, fine. Yeah, and I mean, and you were fortunate enough that hangovers didn't really, you didn't have those kind of hangover effects like a lot of us do. So I, d- I think the important point here is a lot of people say that you know, their high-functioning alcoholic is holding on to their job and, and even succeeding at their job, and that if this ever came out, it would crush them at work. I think it's much, much bigger than that. I think that for us high-functioning alcoholics, when we're in active alcoholism, if it was to come out, it wouldn't just, you know, be a potential income loss. It would crush us everywhere. It would crush us that some of our friends would find out and that our extended family would find out and that all the little pieces of the community that we're active in would find out. So I I just think it goes much deeper when people are like, oh, you know, my husband, I have to keep this a secret so he doesn't lose his job. I think it's much, much more than being afraid that they lose their job. Do you feel like it's the insecurity of the alcoholic? Because I remember like... um, Yes. Yeah. But go ahead and... (laughs) Well, I mean, you you wouldn't have your shoelaces tied wrong in fear that somebody would like look at you and judge you and size you up. You always had to, oh, I hated it when we first got together and you would talk about 
somebody did something and they did something wrong at their job and you had to correct it and then but you didn't tell on them or you didn't confront them or whatever because you didn't want anybody to be mad at you. I was like, stick up for yourself. Like, somebody is doing something that you're, you know, whatever the situation was. But I would always get so frustrated because you wouldn't stick up for yourself. You wouldn't not cross a line in a bad way, but you just wouldn't correct or you wouldn't do something and you wanted everybody to like you. Appearances were everything when I was an active alcoholic because I was hiding so much that I wanted this outer facade to be perfect. I mean, but even before you became an active alcoholic. It's the middle of January. I don't even know what the date is right now, but our Christmas tree is still up. Like, this would never have happened when I was... Oh, I know. Oh, and our lights New on the Year's, outside are still New up. New Year's which, weekend. Which you would have had to have that down. Yeah, the outside lights are kind of my gig, and, <laughs> and they're still up. The only reason we're taking the tree down is because the, Recycling the tree cycle gonna people stop. are going to stop taking trees if we don't get it out on the curb yeah. soon. And but, but the point is, we used to have this immaculate facade that was difficult for both of us to keep up, and it wasn't for our own enjoyment. It was... For the outside world, and now we don't seem to care at all what the outside right. world thinks, which is good. Right. But even before you were active alcohol, like, you were like that, you what know. What do you mean before I was active alcoholic? Okay. <coughs> Excuse me, alcohol. Well, you just, because I've never known you when I didn't drink. You know, <coughs> yeah, but you were you were like that from the beginning. Like, yeah. So there was always that level of insecurity well, and was, making to impress. and uh, Every couple of weeks I was drinking too much and making an ass of myself. I mean, this... This has been plaguing me for a long time before it was even an addiction thing. I can remember in college, you know, everyone gets drunk every weekend and someone is more of a buffoon than others. And some weekends I was the ma- the, the major buffoon. And mm-hmm. so I was always, you know, keeping up appearances. And that's one of the most freeing things about sobriety. Now that I don't have this, you know, embarrassment hanging over my head, I just don't seem to care. <laughs> Which you can tell by the way I look when I walk out of the house sometimes that I just don't seem to care, and it's definitely, but it's it's really... definitely rubbing off on our kids who get on their school Zoom calls in their bathrobes and their pajamas. And... But I, I I appreciate the the lack of not caring what people think. Um, it's not like you're it's much better gross and you don't shower like. You're fine wearing our daughter's every Saturday pink, night, whether pink, I need it or not. Pink neck gaiter that she didn't want to wear anymore for skiing because it was pink. And even though she was a girl, she was you know middle school girl. That's gross. We don't wear pink, and you're kind of cheap too. So you also were like, well, I need a gaiter. I'll just take hers. So you wear a pink, hot pink neck gaiter. And, I like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm easy to spot on the mountain. Yeah, with your bright blue jacket. Yeah. Okay, so that's the, the kind of outward... Thank you for that like laughter, because I needed it after the shitty topics that you threw at me. <laughs> and you're like, those aren't going to be the things you're going to cry about. I'm going <sighs> to... Well, your ability to go dive back headfirst into the past and share that with our listeners is what makes people listen to this. So um, I thank you for that, and I'm sorry for the tears. What about the house, the city... The 300 days of sunshine we have here in Denver. Did any of that factor in at all for you? I know we're getting kind of superficial now. But, you know, our house is tiny, but we love it. Uh, Denver's a pretty great place to live with, yeah. with the climate. Yeah. Did the thought of going back to yeah. southern Indiana with the humidity Gross. and the rain. And... and the dreariness. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Okay. Like, we lived in northeast Indiana before we moved out to Denver, and our the sun didn't shine the whole month of January. And when the movers came, it was like the, on record the world's coldest day ever. And we lived in a very the old, world's coldest. <laughs> I, think, I don't know, but maybe, I remember maybe like Fort Wayne, Indiana. Fort Wayne, Indiana, day ever. maybe not the world's cold. I was gonna say the like the worst, not the world, the wor- worst and coldest day that had been on record for a long time, and. I just, you know, when we moved out here and it was so sunny and we could go on walks and, you know, all of that fun stuff. So, like, right away, like, our daughter, she was worried when it was March and the finally and we had our first cloudy day. And she got very nervous about the sun going away forever. And I was like, geez, like, you were 18 months old, like, in January. And now you're verbally communicating with me. How you're terrified of the sun not coming back. Like, what an impact that is. So, she definitely is a is a sun, a sun kid. 
And then just the, the lifestyle that they have and the freedom and the advantages of having a bigger city with the train and the bus system and the um, an amusement park they and that has a water park they can go to. Good museums. <laughs> Good museums zoo. and the zoo. And just, you know, and that we have a neighborhood that's set up where, like, they can really get to all of their different schools if they were to ride their bikes. Now, like, you know, I definitely rode my bike around my small hometown, but... Like, they would have to go to the next bigger town over to have any of that sort of activity and not even a whole bunch of it. So they've so, been spoiled, and that definitely played into just the advantages that we had of the opportunities that were here and the hiking. and Yeah, so if you're listening and you're considering a move, the Denver <laughs> Chamber of Commerce definitely doesn't need our help <laughs> to attract people to move here since the population has doubled in the last 10 years. We just keep making illegal things legal and then people flock here so we don't need any help attracting people here. We need some wholesome here. people to move here. But we, yeah, we need some of our listeners to move here. You're right. <laughs> but the yeah. point is that you um, it was it was if a minor part it was a part though of the should I stay or should I go? Oh god, I'd have to leave Denver and I'd have to go to back to southern Indiana. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that kind of like played back in with the the feeling of how they might have that anger and resentment mm. that I had moved them because... The kids, yeah. The kids, because I had taken them away from the opportunities that they had. Not so, just, you know, just because it is... Like, it's pretty boring when we go back but to so, Indiana for a long so time. So this is just fascinating. This is the mothering instinct. If people don't think that there's a gender component to this... You know, I'm not a sexist for, for recognizing the gender component that just keeps coming through over and over again with every situation that we work with and talk to and learn about. You even brought the the superficial, oh, the sun shines a lot and I like Denver and it's aesthetically pleasing and there's a lot to do. You even brought that back to the kids. So we said the kids and the, the impact on the kids was the top component in decision making for you for whether to stay or to go. And here's another way, even even the the I like this town versus a different town still goes back to the kids. Well, and that was one of the conversations that my mom and I kind of had when when it was a bad time and and she said, you know, well you can always come home. There's not it'd be tight for a little while, but we'll figure out something and we'll get you going and whatever, you know. But she was like, but to bring them back to Indiana, it's not a lot of opportunities. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And this is not I'm not a, saying that like Indiana we're not just is terrible. Indiana bashing. There's just there my are big small cities home, in Indiana. Yeah, and just you're, my you're small hometown, hometown exactly. where I would be immediately exactly. and I was like, yeah, where I could be like conveniently close to having that, you know, help with childcare from my sister and from my mom and maybe my adult nephews and their but, you know, just that that they would be, my mom recognizes the difference between that small town I grew up in and here and all the opportunities. Right. Because she's come out enough. She knows the activities the kids are involved in. It's just that those options aren't there. Right. Those resources aren't available. All right. So let's, let's turn to your favorite topic, Sherry. Let's talk about sex. No. So, <laughs> so when, when you were weighing, I, I just can't wait for your answer to this. When you were weighing the decision to stay or to go when the worst of the alcoholism was was in force, w- were you worried that you wouldn't get to have sex with me anymore? Was that a no. high on the list? No. And I know that they're like, would I ever remarry? Probably not. No. No. Sex, relationship, no. None of it. It can all just go. Okay. Yeah. And, as, and I don't mean this as a compliment, Matt, but... Matt, but if I were to have divorced you, you would have ruined me for any relationship. I don't know how I would take that as a compliment. So, I don't know how. I don't want you to think that, oh, nothing could compare to the greatness oh. of you. No, okay. like I wouldn't. Right. I, I would be fine being a spinster with a few extra cats when the kids left the house. A few dozen extra cats. No, not a dozen. They smell. I love them, but they smell. So there is a limit. But I, I definitely would not have... Like a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship, the desire for all of that wouldn't have played in at all. Safety, sanity, and security for myself. So having a new that, a new sexual relationship wouldn't have weighed in and also leaving the existing sexual relationship. If anything, 
That might have been pushing you <laughs> out yeah. the door. Could have been, the, the considering... Alcoholic, the disgusting yeah. alcoholic sex we were having could at have, the time. Could have, well, not, I'm sure that that triggered quite a bit of the arguments and the resentments. Sure. That made it when you were weighing the options. Yeah. Could have factored in. Thank you also, for your... Also, if you're, you know... You know how you're the one that says that when they start, when people start drinking at an age, that's when they stop their maturity. I wish that you would have waited until you had a little bit more sexual experience in your young adulthood and late teen years, so then you didn't stop at a horny so I didn't stop sixteen-year-old maturity. Because I feel oh. like that's where your sexual that's, drive was during your alcoholic, active alcoholic days too. That's the topic of a series of ten podcast episodes that I am not going to, to talk about solo sexual immaturity and. and how boys don't know what they're doing and we don't educate and all of that. That's a big deal. But I'll spare you that today. Let's let's turn to some, you know, the emotional topics. In episode nine of this podcast, which was the your debut episode. Nine? Episode nine. When we talked, that was the first time you were on and we talked about, you know, our... Our alcoholic, not our recovery, but our alcoholic days. You, the first time you told your story. At the end, you said that you always knew. I don't remember the exact quote, but you always knew that there was something down deep in me that you loved. And that was one of the reasons that you stayed. So talk a little bit, if you will, about love. And I mean, that had to factor in as as much as you hated me. At, the, at that point, you still at least sort of loved me, right? Yeah. Um, I think that... I think we all, like, marry someone with the intention of love and commitment. And, you know, we're at our peak, perhaps. Um, and I always just saw, like, ambition and drive and desire. Um, and your need for like opportunity and experiences and your work ethic like if I saw all those good things and then um like I just remember like seeing you with my cousin's son and this was like maybe right when we were first married or something and just the way that you were really good with little kids and the way you had always been really good with my nephews when they were in middle school um when you first met them. So I just saw all these really great things about you and I definitely fell in love with that. Like the potential that you had and the the drive. And <clears throat> I think that, that I never felt like a lot of that went away. So it was easy to stay in love with the person that you were. Because it didn't really go away. Because even when you were drinking, you were still a hard worker. You still paid attention to the kids. I know you often will say that you spent a lot of time drinking instead of playing basketball. But... With the kids. With the kids, like, in the yard or, you know, playing soccer on the weekends. But during the week, like, you were very active with them. Because you usually didn't drink that much during the week. But... I still saw a lot of those things. Um, so I didn't completely fall out of love with you. I just couldn't stand, but I didn't recognize to blame the alcohol. I just couldn't stand the person you became when you drank. So there were enough times that you didn't drink that made it made it okay. A lot of the emails that we get when people are describing the situation that they're in and describing their alcoholic spouse and, you know, listing the traumatic things that are happening and listing the progression, talking about how it's getting worse and worse. He's drinking more and more. The fights are getting worse and worse, things like that. Those emails will conclude with, but, but I still love him. What do I do? And that's the heartbreaking. I mean, you pick, put yourself in our shoes and you're reading this email and it's getting worse and worse and worse and you're feeling worse and worse for the person and who's writing it. And then, but person. I still love them. And you're like, boom, that's where you're stuck. 
Yeah. That's where you're locked in. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking. that Alcohol has such a heartbreaking impact on marriages. And notice I didn't say alcoholism, and that was by design. It, that wasn't a slip. I, I, I think the damage that alcohol does to relationships is profound, whether it rises to the level of addiction or not. It's, it's just, and, and I, again, that's another one that could be a series of 10 podcast episodes, but, but the point is the strength of love is amazing in some of the situations that we're aware of and in our situation to still, and, and we know people that have gotten divorced and, and they've done that they've gotten the divorce because they had to, and they made the right decision and their instincts prevailed and they saved their children and they're 100% right, but then they'll say, but I still love him. And it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Let me, let me ask you about hope. Did, was there ever a point where you thought it was hopeless or did you always still have hope that I would stop drinking or that by some miracle things would get better? Did you ever lose that hope? Hmm. Well, a pessimistic person by um, by nature. By nature, I was going to say design, but that wasn't quite right. <laughs> so I don't. I guess I didn't look at like it hope or hope be hopeful or hopeless for me. I felt like I just, um, I just really wanted the best for all of us in the family. And if it meant, like, you would, like, control your drinking and it would be something that, because it was such an identification, uh, identity status to you, or so part of much of your identity. Oh my gosh, I'm so confused. I can't even speak. Um, It was a a part of my identity. It was a part of your identity to be a drinker. Right. And if you could have learned to manage it better, um, then I guess I was hopeful that that would make life better. But I just didn't see that part happening. Um, That you would be able to really contain it. The only thing I think that made it a little bit more hopeful towards the end of your active alcoholism was instead of you taking things outwardly on everybody else, you started becoming very depressed and very anxious and you were wearing it internally so it made it seem like things were better because we weren't getting into arguments and Snipping and I was learning to just kind of detach so I guess I was hopeful that if our life was going to continue it would continue like that or we would kind of be a little bit disengaged with each other but we would still be together you told somebody just yesterday that, you know, we don't necessarily have all the answers, but that your goal in this mission that we're on is to help people progress through the inevitable stages a little faster than we do. So maybe we can save some people some time. So we're four years into sobriety right now, and we're still, we've still got components of this that we're working through and trying to fix. And your message to people is maybe we can shorten the cycle for others yeah and so i think you just made a very important point that hopefully we can help shorten the cycle for others wishing and hoping that your alcoholic can get it under control and can put rules around their drinking so that they can can manage it that is a false hope that is impossible and that isn't just impossible for me because i wasn't strong enough that's impossible in 100 percent of the cases that we're familiar with. Alcoholism is a progressive disease. Once you, once you cross over that invisible line into addiction, there's no controlling it. There's no coming up with the right plan. There's no just trying harder. There's no taking a year off and then your brain resets and you can try drinking again. It just, it isn't, it isn't part of it. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're listening to all these topics and you're thinking through, in your case, which ones are the most important and which ones aren't. How do I feel about finances? How do I feel about the kids? 
how are these weighing in my decision? If part of your decision is hope that your alcoholic can just get his drinking under control and moderate and become a social drinker, I'm here to tell you that's impossible. It's not going to happen. I guess that was a false hope I had because I didn't know how alcohol worked and how it affected us. And that makes it even more complex, right? Because that hope, that false hope is part of what kept you here long enough so that I could figure this out. We could figure this out and I could get over the hump into permanent sobriety. And so that goes back to what we led with, led off with. We're not here to tell people whether they should stay or they should go. We can't make that determination. Patience is something that we say all the time is probably the most important component of recovery is letting things heal, having the patience to let things develop. And for some people, it's just, it's a matter of time. So it's just an impossible question to answer. Should I stay or should I go? We just hope that we can shed some light on the things that are facts and the things that aren't facts. And we can help people work through the process of considering what is their instincts versus what is their insecurities and make the best possible decision in their lives. It isn't easy, is it, Sherry? No. Well, I'm glad you stuck it through. I'm glad we're here together. We're, we're working on this together for our benefit and for the benefit of others. And I'm glad we're together for the sake of the kids. And I'm glad we're together because I love you more than anything on earth. Thank you. Love you too. This is the Intoxicated Podcast for my wife, Sherry Salis. My name is Matt Salis, and we thank you for listening.